0: All right, this morning, if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 6 today as we've been uh, continuing this series, uh, walking through this letter that Paul has written to the believers in Rome. And as you're turning there, I need you to turn there in your Bibles or electronic device, but I also want to take a quick survey. All right, this is not going to be a divisive survey. This is going to be a, a survey so we can just understand who's here in the room, okay? Raise your hand if you have lived your whole life, born and raised, in the great state of Michigan. All right. Yeah, we live in, like, God's high five to the world, right? (laughs) Michigan's awesome. We love Michigan. How many of you have lived in Michigan for more than 20 years? All right. Awesome. How many of you have lived in Michigan 10 years or more? All right. How many of you have lived in Michigan one year or more? Okay, How many of you have lived in Michigan less than a year? All right. So we've got some Michiganders in the place, which is great and exciting. You know, we love Michigan. And uh, for those that may not have been born and raised here, think back to the time that you transitioned here. You know, for those of us that were born and raised, it's hard to think about life outside of Michigan. And uh, life is great here. But I'm sure if you're new to the place, you've had some challenges adapting to your new identity for living here, right? Because Michigan is unique in many different ways. For example, maybe you moved to Michigan and you struggled as to what to call this, right? Maybe you come from a place where this was called the Coke. It's clearly not called a Coke. Clearly. Right, Coke, it would say Coke on the side. No, this is, a, this is a Pepsi. Or maybe you came from a place where you called this soda. But those that have been in Michigan a long time, what do we call this? Pop. Everyone knows it's pop. Right? So maybe you were disoriented moving to Michigan. Maybe you struggled with that. But now we all know that it's called pop. Or maybe you got here and you got in your car and you're driving down the road And you're like, I need to make a left coming up to this intersection. You come up to the intersection and you see a sign that says no left turn. And you're like, what in the world? I just need to go that way. And in order to make that left, you got to go past the intersection, make a U-turn to make a right. Right? Or you come up to the, totally not part of our instinct. We want to go left. It's like that movie of cars, right? If you want to go left, you go right. That's what you do in Michigan, right? Instead of staying in the left lane, if you want to make a left, sometimes you get in the right lane. And then you make a right to make a left, and then you go through the intersection, right? How many of you guys struggle with Michigan lefts? Moving here. All right. And roundabouts? Don't even get me started. (laughs) It's going to be a hot one today. I can just feel it. Or maybe you got here and you struggle with some of the local road names remember the first time you saw the sign dequinder did you want to pronounce it dequandre <laughs> so you're like I still do I don't understand or maybe shainer right or you go up to and you drive across the mackinaw bridge not the mackinac bridge you guys are feeling me or maybe you got here and you got sick for the very first time through one of those wonderful Michigan winters and everywhere you went everyone says all you need to do is drink a verner's <laughs> you guys feeling me right right to be a michigander right the longer that you you're here the more of the identity of being a part of this great state takes hold in our hearts and lives and we're different i think we are special We may be God's chosen people. I don't know. (laughs) But the longer we live here, the more we take on the identity, which is distinct from all other states. And it's a good thing. So for those that have lived in Michigan for a long time, we embrace these things as life. It's what we do, and it's who we are. But in a similar way, in, in, in an even greater way, As we've been looking at this letter that Paul writes to the Romans, he wants these new believers, and he wants us as believers too, to understand what our identity is in Christ. It's the identity that supersedes any other human instituted identity. right? Even greater than being an American, even greater than having the identity as a Michigander, what Paul is, is talking about is this identity of being a child of God. What does it mean to be new in Christ? What does it mean to take on this identity and how do you live from this place? For remember, as we've been walking through uh, chapter five and now into chapter six of Romans, we've been talking about the fact that in the world, there are only two types of people, right? There's the people, those people that have been saved and those people that are in need of salvation. That's it. And the reality of this truth is, is that each one of us, each one of us, have been a part of the second group. We were born into this world in need of salvation, but somewhere along the way, we began to understand, and someone shared with us about the beautiful message of the gospel about how Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, came to Earth to live a perfect life and to die a death on a cross in our place where we did the crime and Jesus comes in and is obedient in every way that we were not. And so it's this, in this, through this faith that we have in Jesus, we become new. We take on this new identity. And in this series we've been talking about, uh, entitled it Newish, where we've been helping us understand who we are in Christ. So before we dive in, I want to give us a, a quick quick recap of where we've been. When we place our faith in Jesus, we understand that before that, we are worthy of condemnation. That we are guilty of sin. That we have looked and understood God's law. And we have violated God's law. We have said, God, I don't want you to be ruler of my life. I don't want you to tell me what to do. And anytime we do that, we sin. And as we sin, the rap sheet of our sinful life continues to grow. And so when we die, we will have to stand before our judge, God, and have to give an account for our lives. And if we're found sinful, then we go to a place called hell for eternity, where the wrath of God is continually poured out on us. What we've learned is there's a beautiful gift of Jesus That Jesus came to live in this life that we lived, and he lived completely sinless. But he also came to die for us. And then he was raised from the dead. And now, if we place our faith in the work of Jesus, we can have peace with God. Not only can we have peace with God, but the Bible tells us that we are justified. That's a, a legal term, as though we did all of, of the crimes, but all of those crimes have all been completely absolved. And it's as though we never sinned. The Bible tells us also in Romans that we have been reconciled to God, that Jesus stepped in and he took our punishment. And now we're, we live in the era of grace that even though we continue to sin, more grace and more grace abounds. And what we've seen are these two truths that we saw last week and we're going to see again today and we're going to see again next week are these two truths that keep repeating themselves over and over again because this is difficult for the new believer to understand this new identity because we live in a world where there still is sin. But what we see from the book of Romans are two truths. First of all, sin and death no longer have power over us because of Christ. Sin and death no longer have power over us because of Christ. That's the first truth. But the second truth is, is that sin is ever present in our lives. So no longer has power over us, but it's ever present still in our lives. And how do we mesh with that? How do we live with that? How do we work that out? Well, this is what Paul is trying to help us see. And today we're going to continue to look at this battle that rages in our lives today. We're constantly, from the time that we wake up to the time we fall asleep, we're constantly under attack from this assault from sin. And how do we, that are new, live in this battle in a right way? This is what Paul's going to get to today. And the big idea of what we're going to see today is that sin is a power that seeks to master you. Sin is a power that seeks to master you. As you're constantly under this assault from sin, I want us to look at three ways in which we can escape this assault from sin. Look with me beginning in verse eight. Paul writes, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And what I want us to see here is the first thing that we need to understand if we're going to take on this assault from, of sin is we first need to know that Christ will never die again we need to know that he'll never die again see Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's re-emphasizing the truth that he's explained in the previous verses when we place our faith in Jesus we receive his identity his identity becomes our identity and his work becomes our work so when Jesus died we died with him and when Christ rose from the dead we rose with him And so what Paul's doing in this section is he's being a good teacher, realizing that we as students or hearers of this message don't always pick up on the truth the very first time. And so he's continuing to repeat this idea of you died with Christ and now you are alive. He's continuing to repeat this so that we will begin to understand it and we will begin to embrace it. So the basic proposition of what he's saying here is that those who have died with Christ also live with him. It's a cure from the curse. Remember what the curse brought in? The curse brought death. And Jesus cures the curse, and now all that there is is life. And there's two aspects of this life that we have in Christ. There's the life right now, so we can experience life right now, but there's also an eternity-reaching aspect of this truth, which says we have life everlasting. And so what we see is this, this shift It's the shift from what I like to see in the previous verses and previous chapters. It's moving from a courtroom, right? For in the courtroom, it's there where we stand before the judge, and because of Jesus, we now find ourselves justified. And now in chapter six, what's transitioning is, is from the courtroom now to a throne room where we have to decide who sits on the throne of our lives, who is our king, who is our master. And what, Jesus is saying, or what, what Paul is saying here about Jesus is that when Jesus is the ruler of our life, he has overcome sin. He has conquered sin, that sin now no longer has dominion or sin no longer has reign as a king sitting on a throne. So now as believers, we no longer bow our hearts to sin. Sin no longer rules over us. But Jesus rules over us and his righteousness rules over us. Where Jesus' victory becomes our victory, where we receive freedom and we receive life. Now, this freedom that, that Jesus has won for us is an amazing freedom that we get to experience. And in some ways, it's similar to the freedoms that we have as Americans, Remember back in 1776 when our nation declared that we were free? And then we entered into a a series of, of, of battles to win our freedom back. And many, many people gave their lives so that we could be free. And since 1776, we've continued to have to battle to remain free. And so many have continued to give their lives for this idea of freedom that is the American way. So freedom, our freedom as Americans, was bought years ago. Our freedoms as Christians was bought years ago. But what makes our freedom in Christ way better than our freedom in America is that it doesn't have to be defended. You see, even today, if we want to keep our American freedom, if, if some nation comes in or, 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 or some terrorist group wants to come in and destroy our freedom, then we have to step in and defend it. People have to give their lives for it. So it's not something we have safety and security about because we can lose it in a second. The freedom that Jesus bought for us is the victory was won years ago and it has implication today. So today we can sit back and know that our freedom in Christ is secure. It's not going anywhere. He was once in a time bought and won and now we live in it so Paul longs that we would know this, that we would have confidence in this freedom, that we would believe in it, that we would trust in it, that we would know that we have freedom, that sin no longer reigns over us. We no longer have to worry about being defeated by sin because we're free from it. If we are united with Jesus, then we have his complete victory and we have complete confidence in him. This is why we sing about our freedom as Christians because sin no longer destroys us. The, the end is one. We can walk through life knowing that even if it's difficult now, we know in the end we will be with God because he promised us. Us life. So the first thing that we need to do as we walk through this assault of sin is that we know that Christ will never die. He is victorious. And because the ruler of our throne, the, the ruler that sits on our throne never dies, we know that we will never die as well. So the second truth that we need to see if we want to overcome this assault of sin is that we must consider yourself dead to sin. Look with me in verse 11. He says, So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So even though what we see here is even though we know that that sin has been defeated that sin no longer has control over us, sin no longer has to be our master, we still see that sin is ever-present. Sin is here. Sin is around us. And so how do we live as children of this victorious king in a world that is still surrounded by sin? I want us to understand that in the Christian life, there are lots of things that happen. At the moment of salvation, that's when justification takes place. The moment that we give our hearts and our lives over to the work of Jesus and by placing our faith in that, the Bible tells us that in that moment we are fully justified. That we were in right standing with God for all eternity. But then at that moment of salvation, another process begins and it's called the process of sanctification. We're not immediately made holy right? But sanctification is this process over time where we become more and more like Jesus and less and less like our old selves. And so in our lives, even though we're, we're forgiven of all of our sin, at the moment of salvation, there's still a lot of sin in our lives, right? At the moment of salvation, we're still addicted to sin. We like it. We love it. We want to continue to do it. But then we also know, because Christ lives in our lives, that we need to be repulsed by it. And so it's this process, it's this struggle, it's this battle of knowing that we have peace with God, but sometimes we just don't have peace in this life because we still sin. And so what Paul is trying to help us understand is even though you're good with God, he's saying you're still addicted to sin. But instead, consider yourselves dead to sin. The sin no longer has to rule over you. You no longer have to sin, but you can be alive to God in Christ. So in, in, in some ways, as we first remember that Jesus is victorious, the second thing is we must moment by moment see the battle of our minds. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Constantly think about your thoughts And think about where your heart is and be reminded that your position and your posture have changed. That sin no longer controls you. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Sin doesn't have to master you. But if you allow the Lord to master you and to be your king and to sit on your throne, then you can live in this freedom. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Like, take time and think about what the sin in your life produced. Right? Maybe it was a different kind of addiction. Maybe it was anger. Maybe it was pride. Maybe it was whatever those things. Did any of those things ever birth joy and peace? This is what Paul is saying. Like, consider now that you're dead to sin. You no longer have to live in it. Like, think about how crazy this this idea of, of, of being dead to sin is. Imagine for a moment that you wanted to spend time with a friend. And so so being alive in Christ is like being able to go to your friend's house and spend the afternoon with them and talking with them. You have all kinds of freedom. But think about how crazy it would be for you to want to spend time with someone, for you to go to a cemetery, to dig out a casket, and to try to have fellowship With a dead person. Let that that imagery rest on you for a moment. This is what Paul is saying you're dead to sin. Don't hang out in the cemetery trying to dig up dead people so that you can have life. Instead, you have life. Live in it. This victory has been won. This new way to live has been afforded to us. So let us walk in it. Let not sin reign. Again, it's, it's this the throne room scene. Don't put sin on the throne of your life. Don't allow it to be your master because he doesn't have to be there. For we know that whatever or whomever is on our throne, we will obey. And sin leaves death, but God leaves life. I I, I like to believe that in the life of a believer, in the life of a follower of Christ, the story that our life is telling is written into two chapters, only two chapters, right? The first chapter is everything that you did in your life to the moment of salvation, right? That's a story. Sometimes it's not a beautiful story. A lot of times it's an ugly story. It's a story where lots of things that you might be shameful or or might feel shame about, you might feel resentment about, it's it's all of those things that lead you to the point of where you say, I need Jesus. And the moment that you pray and you ask Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior, the page turns and you begin volume two or chapter two of your story. And what's amazing about the second chapter of our lives is that we no longer live like we did in the first chapter. The things that ruled our lives no longer have to rule us. And we see this. Like in, our, in chapter one, we might have been a person that, that held grudges against people. Like when someone hurt us or offended us, we, we held a grudge against them. But the person in chapter two, guess what? You no longer have to hold grudges, right? Because God has given you forgiveness. God says, I'm on the throne of your life and I'm in charge. So the grudges of your past can be done away with. The person in chapter one was a person that uttered curse words, right? With their tongue, they would despise people and tear down the image of God and other people. But the person in chapter two understands that God has given them a mouth. For praise. And God has given them words so they could build people up. So the person in chapter two is completely different. The person in chapter one went through life seeking instant gratification, doing whatever they could to make themselves feel good and to feel better. And I need to do it now and I need to have it right now. But the person in chapter two, Understands that God is working out the plan. Everything that God is working out is for our good and for our benefit so we can sit back and trust in God's plan. See how that's different? I pray this morning you have a chapter one and a chapter two. And I pray right now that you're living in chapter two and you're, you're trying to understand now what it means to be in Christ and have this power. Or maybe you're here today and you know that you're still in chapter one. You still know that you're following after your own desires. You're doing everything for yourself. And today you're looking for answers. You want there to be an opportunity for you to turn the page and start chapter two. I want you to know that God gives that invitation to everyone at all times. If you're here and you haven't yet come to know Jesus, the Bible tells us all we need to do is call on the name of the Lord and we will be saved. So today you can go from chapter one chapter 2 so first we need to remember the victory that we have in Jesus that Jesus will never die again second we need to understand consider ourselves dead to sin but third the way we uh, come against this assault of sin is that we present yourself to God verse 13 he says do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So Paul here gives us this third weapon against the assault of sin. And he says, your third weapon is to present yourself, all that you are and all that you have at the throne or at the foot of Of your king. So again, it's a scene in the throne room where we bring ourselves to the king, where we say, God, everything that I have, everything that I am is here to help advance your mission, to advance your kingdom, so that more righteousness may be done as a result of what you're doing through me. So, in this idea of presenting our members to our God, he's referring to our bodies our literal bodies. God, we give you our body. God, we give you our mind, our thoughts. We give him our hearts. We give him our affections. We give him our plans and we give him our futures so that now we give our members to the Lord so that he, we may be instruments of God for his righteousness. In, In essence, it's like coming to the Lord and saying, God, here I am, use me. I give you all of myself for what you want to do. And here's the crazy thing about it, is salvation is a one-time act. But this sacrifice that Paul is talking to is an ongoing act, where daily we come to God and we die to ourselves. And we live as living sacrifices. Just as Romans chapter 12, verse one, Paul urges a couple chapters later. He says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. So it's, an, 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 it's as though now the, the scene shifts as we're still in the throne room, but what happens is before the throne, there's an altar. And as we enter into that throne room with God on the throne and the altar before us, what God wants us to do is to get up on the altar get up on the altar and lay down and say here I am but here's the problem and the challenge with living sacrifices is that living sacrifices constantly move because they're still alive and so here's the key for the Christian life for you and I is that when we know and we want to come into the throne room before the God our God is that we get up on the throne. And we say, God, here it is. Here's my, even if it doesn't make sense, like everyone else in the world is doing this. But when I surrender myself, God says, go a different way. We say, okay, I'm gonna trust in you. I'm gonna trust that you want to, me to live with my finances in this way, that you want me to live in my relationships this way. You want me to wait to be intimate with someone else until I'm married. God, I know that's your word. And however the world wants to spin that and say, hey, that's strange, that's odd, that's difficult, you say no. I'm getting up on the altar and I'm waiting until I'm married. Like, these are the big things that God calls us to. So the goal is to stay on the altar. I see a lot of believers that have this understanding of surrender and sacrifice, it's like they're a house right and they they give their house they give themselves as a house to the lord and they say lord i give you everything except for this closet i give you everything god you can have you can hang out in the kitchen you can hang out in the bathroom you can hang out in the basement we can watch movies together you can do all that you got all of that but not this closet and so you've given god everything but yet in the middle of the night you walk into god's house because you got to get it in your closet Right? How weird would that be? Like if you literally gave someone else a a house, but you kept a closet in that house. And every once in a while, you're like, hey, I just got to, hey, knock, knock, knock. I got to get in my closet. So you walk in, you spend some time in your closet, regardless of what's going on in the house. It could be a birthday party in the house. You're like, no, sorry about your birthday party. I got to get in my closet. Like that's crazy, right? So when we give ourselves to God, he wants all of us, not just some of us. Sin wants to master you. Sin wants to control you. Sin wants to destroy you. But when we put God on the throne, we are reminded that we are dead to sin. And when we surrender to Jesus, when we surrender ourselves to Jesus, we're surrendering ourselves to righteousness. What that means is we become actors in God's plan where he gives us the power and the strength and the ability to do mighty things for him. I want to share with you as we get ready to close a, a personal story of my own struggles to understand my Christian identity. There were years ago when I was, I, I was really trying to struggle with this and put this down on paper in a way that I could understand, and this is how I did it. I, I gave it kind of like a, ga- a, a game metaphor, okay? Okay. So when I became a Christian, I began to see life, and I began to understand that life is like a game where there are a couple of elements. There's a ball, and there's a goal. So I first started playing the game, and I know the Christian life's not a game, but it's a metaphor, right? So just stick with me. And so when I began, I thought the game was like football. And so I would catch the ball. And when I would catch the ball, I hear the ref like throwing a flag. And he says, that's not how this works. And I would get frustrated. I'm like, well, the game's like football. He's like, no, it's not. It's not like football at all. Because when you're touching the ball, you're traveling. Like, oh, great. Wrong game. Okay. So maybe, maybe this is all like basketball. Maybe the Christian life is like basketball, where I get the ball, and when I get the ball, I'm going to shoot it into the goal and make a basket, and that's what God wants me to do. Well, so there I went. And when I get the ball, I catch the ball, and I hold it, and I hear the ref blow the whistle again. I'm like, what's going on? It's like you're not supposed to use your hands. Wrong game again. So I'm living through the Christian life now, and I'm like, "What, what kind of game is this? And I'm like, maybe it's soccer. Maybe the game's soccer. And so I'm I'm in the game, I'm playing the game, I'm going along, the ball comes to me and I kick the ball and every time I kick the ball, I can't even get it anywhere near the goal. And I hear the ref say again, hey, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it all wrong. This is not how any of this works. I'm like, what's the game? And I began to consider and realize the game was actually foosball with a ball, with a goal. But there's one difference. Is that I'm a foosman. And my role is to get on the bar. You guys following me? My only role is to get on the bar and to stay there. For I'm not in control. It's the one who's got the bars in his hands that is doing the work. Right? And the key for me was found in Colossians. Where Paul is writing, he says, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in me, or me in Christ. And the idea is that I'm a foosman standing on the bar. And when I surrender myself to be a foosman, God's going to use me. He's going to flip me. He's going to turn me. And he's going to shoot the goal and make the score. Does that make sense? Yeah, let's give God praise for that. Like, I will tell you, that was life changing for me because there's no longer any frustration it's not me doing the work I'm not trying to be better I'm not trying to sin less I'm trying to surrender and you know there are times still in my life that I get off that bar and I try to do it again all by myself And I hear the referee blowing his whistle. Penalty, foul, penalty, foul. And that gets me frustrated again. And then I have to come back to consider myself dead to sin. Consider the fact that I'm not in control of my life, that Jesus is sitting on the throne of my life. And so my response is to surrender and to get back on the bar. This is where life and faith Freedom in Christ are experienced. Life on the bar. So today, maybe you found yourself up until this point in your life struggling with the game of life. My encouragement to you today is what you need to do is come to place your faith in the work of Jesus. And by doing that, then you have new life, you have peace. Or maybe you're here today and you've gotten off that bar. You've gotten off that foosball bar and you've been living life on your own and you're feeling the results of that. You're feeling the distance from God. You're feeling the frustration. And maybe even you've, you've taken on habits of sin that you can't even get out of that you've danced with sin long enough, that it's become who you are and you've been trying to clean yourself up and you've been trying to fix yourself up and as a believer, you have been living a frustrated life. If that's you today, then simply what you must do is get back on the bar. Lay it all down again and say, God, not me, but you. Not me, but you. You. The response of our life is always through surrender. Because I want to tell you, no other time in your life has the meaning and the truth of God's word been so needed in this world. The world does not need to see us living our lives, trying to do good and to be right. The world sees enough of that. But what the world needs most desperately right now are those that have surrendered their members to the Lord so that they can be used as acts of righteousness. The world needs us to be surrendered so that God can use us so that others may be saved because God is still in the business of saving people. God is still in the business of helping those that need to be saved to be saved, because God loves them just as much as he loves you. And so in this season of our lives, may we surrender so that we may be suitable for acts of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you for his life, we're thankful for his death, and we're thankful for his resurrection. And Father, we are reminded today that all of those things are ours as well, that we are no longer a slave to sin, we're no longer controlled by sin, but that you've given us life now and life in eternity. So Father, with the breaths that we have left, The number that have already been counted by you. Father, may we determine to surrender our lives so that we may carry out your acts of righteousness. Father, I know today there are some in this place that are struggling with addiction, they're struggling with anger, they're struggling with pride, they're struggling with greed they are struggling with lust and others that are struggling with a myriad of other sins today, Father. Father, we know that you are greater than all of these, that you have put to death all of these and these things no longer have to have mastery over our lives. So Father, help us today in our frailty, in our weakness, to consider ourselves dead to these things. Father, we are desperately in the middle of this war and some have stopped fighting. Some of us have come to sin and say, this is just it. May this never be. Father, awaken our minds and awaken our hearts to once again, to surrender all, of we, all we are and all that we have at your feet. Today, Father, I pray that this song we sing will be a reflection of our heart and it truly will be our posture where we're able to open up our hands and say, less of me.